Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello and welcome to Reloscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions in life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Aditi Kuti. Let's get on with the show. Dr. Bill Johnson, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having um, now, do you mind introducing uh, yourself to those uh, those members of the audience who don't quite know you yet? Well, pleasure. So I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I have full-time uh, practice and consultation business. In addition to psychotherapy, I do DEI work, diversity, equity, mm-hmm. inclusion, consultation. Um, my passion is really, I'd say, three areas. Social justice primarily. So I've written, published, and done presentations on uh, anti-racism. I'd say, um, you know, about me, you know, trying to get the field to be more culturally competent and it's, you know, theoretical um, treatment and um, of people of color in particular, especially African-American men. Um, I will say after that, I'm a mindful self-compassion teacher trained at the Center of Mindful Self-Compassion, Chris Germer, Chris and Neff. So uh, mindfulness is kind of core to both my practice, my personal professional life. And then the last thing I'm a sex therapist. And so, you know, discussions like we're going to have today on, you know, interracial couples and kink, BDSM communities, or open polyamorous relationships. These are all core to my, uh, my clinical practice. Um, so in addition to being a published author who's written articles on the topics that just talked about, um, I would say in my, in my spare time, you know, big time sports fan, shout out LeBron James. If I can just do an obligatory, you know, I'm a Saints supporter, so go to the Saints. I think this is this is our year. In 1967, it's gonna be it's gonna be all you know. We're gonna we're gonna bring it home again. Um. So uh, um. And sometimes, sometimes a child dancer. Um. But uh, you know, with me, the personal political, the same thing. So, um, anti-racism, mindfulness, uh, those are not just especially for me, but they're also for personal. Mm-mm. Now the Saints. Um, I'm not American. Which sport is that? So the Saints of St Kilda, and that's AFL. It's Isaac Wills oh. football there. Oh my God, the St Kilda Saints. Oh, that's pretty cool. St Kilda Saints. Yeah. What are you back for? I'm not to? personally into AFL, uh, but it used to be. Uh, well, my brother and my my dad go for the Hawks, the Hawthorne Hawks. So I suppose that's kind of um, where I'm at. But I, I don't really follow the sport personally. Um, I am also an immigrant to Australia, so for me, getting used to AFL was a different thing. Um, cricket is kind of more uh, my, my thing. Yeah, yeah. As you know, I lived there for five years, so I was a you know a, a recent ex-migrant now to Australia. Um, I have no problem with with Hawthorne. You know, if you you know some other teams, I might have to cut off this cut this discussion short. But uh, with Hawthorne is all good. Um, you can say you I'm, can say Collingwood. It's fine. <laughs> we know. <laughs> I don't want to look. I don't want to get a lot of you know, you know, ne- negative, you, you know, uh, um, uh, responses on my Instagram, you know, anti kill <laughs> the messages there. But you know who I'm talking about. Uh, we look, took me a little while to get into the game as well. I'm a sports fan, big time. So, mm-hmm. uh, so it was really cool going to uh, Ehad and 
and and and, and checking off games. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When did you leave Australia out of curiosity? I uh, left in 2015. 2015, pretty recently, yeah. pretty recently, not a long time ago. Yeah, big. it still looks a special place in my heart, you know, fourth blessing Melbourne where I live. Um, yeah, yeah, thanks for asking, bro. Um, we do have, you know, beyond uh, your sports preferences, a bunch of other questions um, about your preferences in a segment called Have You Met Dr. Bill Johnson, um, in which I ask you a bunch of quick questions. Are you happy to answer them? I do, although I'm a little sad that we're not just talking about my sports preferences there. I could easily <laughs> take up hours doing that. But yeah, happy to talk to what I have this segment as well. We we can be we can we can I can add I can add a sports question at the end of that as well if you so prefer. Um, but we'll start with um, a book. Do you do you have a favorite book? So I do. I mean, I've got I don't know what a favorite as in number one, but I got a you know um, definitely authors and books that I'm just a massive massive fan on that I recommend. You know, start from the beginning, Ibram Kendi, which is just a comprehensive book on racism. Uh, to want to understand racism and how it, you know, was impacted by the, you know, global enslavement trade and, and, and really not just in the U.S., but also, you know, within the Americas and Europe to some degree. Uh, Kennedy's got a wonderful book there. You know, I, I want to say any book from Bell Hooks, you know, I might say The Yearning is a great book, but and The Will to Change is a great book. But if you pick up a book from Bell Hooks, you can't go wrong. And then I'm a mindful self-compassion teacher. The best book that I've read that addresses mindfulness and meditation is Ruth King's Mindful of Race. Now, this book is not just for, you know, if you want to deepen your mindfulness and meditation practice, this is a wonderful book. And if you want to understand that integration of mindfulness and social justice, social equity and racial justice, then this has got to be the, the book for you. So, so throughout those three, certainly, I'm always reading you know, a couple at a time, but, but those are three that, you know, you know, I, I keep, um, I, I always recommend. And in the case of all three books, I've read it at least twice because that's just how meaningful the books and all three books. Mm -hmm. Definitely three really, really great ones to add to the book list. Um, for sure. Uh, what about, um, a favorite movie? I know you mentioned that you didn't really have a favorite book, but did you, did you happen to have a favorite movie as well? A deal of favorite movie. Um, so look, um, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Denzel fan. I'm, I'm a, a rock, a role in rock with Denzel. So Malcolm X, which is a Spike Lee film directed, star Denzel. Um, still my my favorite movie. Um, you know, I love the depth of the character. Um, Denzel did a wonderful job. Really followed the book. You know, Malcolm X is you know, autobiography. Malcolm X. Um, I stole Alex Haley, uh, which is a great book. I might recommend that book as well. So I'll put that that movie, but any movie by Denzel, I'm all good with. I want to just mention. Uh, lately, I've been watching The Equalizer pretty much, you know, on 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 repeat, you know. Um, uh, but uh, but you know, any any Denzel mm. movie, probably I'm probably all in. Denzel Washington, favorite actor. That should have been the question, <laughs> I think, probably. Um, do you have a podcast that you've been listening to lately? Definitely, I'm all in. So a bunch of them that I'm down with. So Code Switch, which is NPR, and uh, Code Switch deals with racial politics, racial justice. They've dealt with interracial relationships before. There's maybe more than one episode. So I recommend Code Switch. As you know, as I just said earlier, I'm a big time sports fan. So 
Bamani Jones, the right time. If you want to, you know, Bamani's breaking it down and he's keeping you connected with pop culture as well, but he knows sports. Um, so, uh, so big time Bamani Jones fans, um, Latino Rebels Radio, I'm a fan of. Uh, Nicole, Nicole Byer, don't know if you know that name, but she's hilarious in Austin. Uh, she got a few. Why Won't You Date Me, though, is, um, is hilarious. And it's also intersectional and it's full of, you know, uh, you know, you know, you know, racial justice and, and not just that, but body positivity. I mean, Nicole Byer is, is awesome. And I would also add um, the 1619 podcast, uh, which, you know, again, looking at the history of racism in the U.S., but also the global mistaking trick. So a couple yeah. couple podcasts that I might that, that, I, that I certainly recommend. Yeah, I've heard 1619. It is a fantastic um, podcast as well. New York Times, right? It, that's, it's, I think. That's yeah. right. That's um, and Nicole Byer's Netflix special. I've seen that so many times. I watch it over and over again. Um, it's a favorite of mine. She's incredible. Um, do you have a famous role model that you've looked up to um, other than Denzel Washington? No, not other than Denzel. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, thinking about it now, my, my role model, um, and, and this is too easy. Number one, it's my grandmother who's 99 years old, still going strong right now. The strongest person I've ever met. Uh, it's my, my mother. I just don't know where I'll be without her. I just cannot imagine a uh, brilliant, uh, bold, strong, uh, intuitive, very wise. Uh, and then it's my mentor, Dr. Joseph White, the father of black psychology. Um, so there is no greater mentor. Maybe there's no greater psychologist than Dr. Joe White. I might encourage your audience to check out his book, The Psychology of Blacks, a wonderful book there, foundational book. Um, you know, it's, 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 you know, kind of central to, I would mm-hmm. say, you know, anti-racist work and understanding social equity, their groundbreaking book. Um, and, and, just a, and just a wonderful, warm and wise and caring mentor in person. He passed away a few years ago, but um, so, so those, are, those are my heroes. I, I would say, and, and thinking about it, I might, I might throw in LeBron James in there. I think that he does, he's dealt with a lot. The, the LeBron James haters are just like, I mean, they, they are just like, you know, everywhere, you know, it's just a universal thing. So, so, uh, and then I, I might throw in a, I think I will uh, a plug on um, Michael Metz as well. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, again, love his story. Uh, still listen to, you know, YouTube, his speeches there. Um, uh, the the, uh, the impact that he's had on the world, my own community, on, on diverse communities throughout the, throughout the you know diaspora. Um, so uh, uh, so I yeah I would say that that, that that's that's what comes to mind when I think of uh, role models. Yeah yeah for sure. And and what is the last course that you completed? Well, I mean, I, I just finished. I, I, uh, I spent, so, so I'm a licensed psychologist and I graduated in, in 2007, don't mind saying, with my, my doctorate in psychology. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're always growing and you're always learning and you're always, you know, they're, they're you know, for me, it changes, changes life. You know, the only constant is change. And that's a true story, right? And so I um, recently took, uh, did a two-year course to, in sex therapy to become a sex therapist. Um, and so, uh, that was a powerful, powerful experience. Um, I did, I did the mindful self-compassion course. And then over the weekend, just now, I uh, did a training in IFS, internal family systems. Um, so, uh, so, um, yeah, those are the three uh, big ones that I, that I've recently. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And final question, uh, what's your favorite NBA team? I like it. I, li- I like this. Yes. Yeah. And we can just talk NBA for the next hour and a half. I want you to know. So my favorite team, now, okay, I'm going to be really honest. Here. <laughs> I know we're just meeting, but I feel like I can trust you. I'm going to let you know exactly how I feel. Sorry. Yep, yep, yep. So I'm from originally, I'm from a city called St. Louis, which is, in the, which is in the state of Missouri in the United States, right? I used to live there. Yeah. Did you? Yeah, I did for two years. <laughs> Well, there you go. Well, let me tell you why that's relevant to the question you asked me, and then I'll get your take on saying, what did you think of St. Louis? I, I was six and when I moved there and eight when I left. Um, it was interesting. I think a lot of my reflections on it are in hindsight, as like what I know about U.S. now, as opposed to how I felt when I lived there. I liked it at the time, but now I look back and I'm like, wow, it was a very interesting interesting experience australia's melbourne is very different melbourne is far more multicultural i feel than the st louis it was very much pockets ethnic pockets at least the way i experienced it um i don't know if that was your experience at all uh living there growing up again i was only there for two years (laughs) yeah i I feel really curious i really appreciate your openness there and sharing that you know um well you you know so so you might notice about st louis that um we don't have a professional basketball team. So St. Mm-hmm. Louis is the baseball and hockey team. Um, and so because of that, and I've always been a sports fan, so I've always rooted for teams that were in other states. And what happened was I turned more into a player fan than a team fan because I didn't have a hometown team. So mm-hmm. I would, in the U.S. we say root, I know that it's a Burke in Australia, um, and that word root does other things in Australia sometimes. Uh, but 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 in the U.S. we say we say root. So you, I, I was barricade for players more than I was for teams. And so I've always been more of a player fan in professional basketball than a team fan. So the honest answer to the question is my favorite team right now is the Los Angeles Lakers. But that's only because LeBron James plays for that team. Now, once he retires, I'm relatively confident that I, 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 I've got to pick a, you know, I've got, we'll see, you know, but there are yeah. a lot of players that I, that I like, you know, uh, in the league's church, he's got a few players there in the mm-hmm. league, by the way, Payne Mills there, Ben Simmons there. Um, so, uh, so, and in other players, and I think about it, but, um, um, so right now it's not right now it's the Lakers before it was the Lakers, it was Cleveland, LeBron was with the Cavaliers. And before that was the Miami Heat fan when it was not, fashionable to be one because of all the haters i was okay. a heat fan um so uh so so that's that's my favorite team right now great yeah. great question yeah yeah one of my memories growing up in st louis uh was that they brainwashed me into becoming a cardinals fan so i still am one today even though i do not watch baseball but like if i hear about them winning i'm like yep that's that's st louis pride for me uh but same we didn't have a base basketball team so like That's, no team loyalty there. By the way, I connect to your story about being brainwashed to to go to Berg fourteen when I when I lived in Australia, <laughs> and I just moved to Melbourne. I'm working at the university, and I'm hearing a lot about AFL, but I don't I don't I'm not I don't understand the game. You know, I'm in gridiron is what I'll call it. You know, um, and so I'm yeah you know, I'm trying to get into it, but I'm not sure what's happening there on the field. So a colleague comes to my office one day. He's like, you know, you know, Bill, you know, me and 
people I know are going to a game. Do you want to come? I'm like, you know, I, that's what I do on my weekends, really. So, so, um, and what was funny about the experience was, um, <laughs> was, um, being way too open here that, that the colleague I'm talking about was just great, really humanistic and compassionate and soft spoken and just everyone liked this person, right? And then we get to the game. And there was like a whole nother colleague that just came out screaming at the field. And I'm like, but the game that I went to see, never forget this, was St. Kilda or Fremantle. You have to mm-hmm. exactly who they played. Um, and, and it was going to the game and watching it in person. I could see the structure. I could understand the rules. I couldn't, watching TV, I couldn't quite get it. But what, going to the game, I was like, ah, I see. And then, I, and then after a little while, I began to see the strategy. I could, I could really understand, you know, the structure of the game itself. And I was there. My first year in Melbourne is the year that we went to, well, one of the years that we went to the final and played, played Collingwood. As a matter of fact, we had, that was the, that was the year of the tie um, that then we had to play the, the, I think the next week and ended up losing Collingwood. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah so that's how I became a, a, a Saints man. I love that. I love that. I feel like we've gotten to know a lot about you <laughs> in, in that segment. Um, so definitely mission mission accomplished with that one. <laughs> um, we might move on now um, to, I guess, the meat of our podcast, uh, which is this week about interracial relationships and also navigating the relationship dynamics that are unique to interracial relationships. Uh, I want to start with just a contextual question. What is a relationship to you? How would you describe a relationship? You know, so so broadly speaking, um, I think one good way to look at a relationship is any kind of a connection or association between people. It could be intimate, could be platonic. Um, so so it's any connection between people. And I say people, it could be two or more people, right? So broadly speaking. Um, um, it's not just romance, it's friends, it's acquaintance. It's, you might have a snap, uh, a Snapchat streak going with someone. And so every day you're, you're, you know, messaging each other to keep the streak going on. That's a relationship. It can be close. It can be full of respect and admiration and, 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 and trust and love, or it could be contentious and antagonistic, right? All of these things define and describe a relationship. Mm-hmm. And 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 what's the romantic relationship for you within within that? So you know, I, I think that the main thing that changes is you know the, the goals of the relationship, the level of intimacy within within the relationship. So you know, um, when we're thinking about uh, romance, um, you, you know, some of the things that sustain a romantic connection or involved in that or things like physical touch and, you know, this kind of deep level of, of admiration and, 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 and intimacy, emotional intimacy, but also could be physical intimacy. Um, so it's, it's the same kind of context of connection, but now the connection is taken on, you know, other kinds of attributes that may or may not be present when we're talking more broadly about, about, um, about relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And in your, I guess, opinion, do romantic relationships still hold the same meaning and structure they they did perhaps years ago? And I know definitely within our topic of interracial relationships, it definitely has changed um, around the world. And so, and so, you know, if the, if the question is, are are relationships just as important as they were years ago? Then the answer is an absolutely unequivocal. Yes, if not more important, right? So I just want to say real quickly that research has demonstrated, and we don't need a we don't really need a research debate about this, but we have one. You know, we've got a, you know an entire kind of you know abundance of research that's talked about healthy relationships as an antidote or a psychological vaccine against mental and physical illness, and so it's clear that uh, relationships have a direct and significant impact on emotional and mental health. But what I'm talking about, the impact of relationships on a health, I'm especially talking about, you know, the quality of the relationship. So those relationships that have, you know, respect and that have reciprocation and that have mutuality and admiration and emotional support and appreciation. Individuals who are, you know, who belong to those kind of connections also tend to have lower levels of psychological distress, right? And also have better, um, a, a lower distress, not just presently, but also uh, in the future, right? And this is across genders, across, across cultures. So um, a kind of stable, loving, supportive relationship reduces emotional distress. And so it's just as important now, if not more so uh, than it was. I also want to say, and you talked about interracial relationships and the change, and I think you were touching on the changing of, of uh, societal acceptance within some context of these kinds of relationships. And I just want to add that I think in some ways, in many societies that move towards, you know, and it's about time, I want to say, a greater acceptance of romantic relationships outside of a cis-hetero binary, right? So I'm talking about a growing acceptance in some spaces towards uh, LGBTQIA plus, right? Uh, romance and marriage. And so one indication of this is, for example, the legalization of, of, of gay marriage, right? I live in Chicago where gay marriage is legal, right? Um, and so I, I want to be clear, I'm not saying I absolutely LGBTQIA plus communities continue to experience discrimination and oppression. And uh, the acceptance is by no means pervasive, but I think we're moving in the right direction um, um, in, in the kind of large spots of society. And I also think that another example of the changing of the political structure of romantic relationships is that there is some indication of a growing acceptance of what we call alternative relationship structures, right? So now I'm talking about open relationships. I'm talking about polyamorous relationships. I'm talking about ethically non-monogamous relationships. So, so romance doesn't need to strictly come in a, in a diet. It's not just strictly about two people. We're beginning as a society in some spaces again to recognize that as human beings, we have the capacity uh, to, to experience and convey love and desire and romance for more than one person at the same time. So, so as you said, there's been a shifting in the acceptance of diverse relationship structures. 
I think we've also shifted to some degree. Again, it's not kind of pervasive, but we shifted in our acceptance of, of who's involved in the romantic, you know, diet or the romantic connection, better way to say it. And so relationships still matter, but now there's greater openness to relationships beyond kind of, you know, cis hetero binary. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just because they kind of look different doesn't mean that romantic connection has changed or it's any less important. It's still valued within those, those structures. That That's exactly right. So, um, you know, uh, they may not reflect the kind of um, historically, you know, mainstream images that we were, you know, exposed to um, um, and in large amounts. And, and well, the truth is that the, the deeper truth is that these diverse relationships and relationship structures, they've always really been there. Mm-hmm. The changing now is the mainstream acceptance of them. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so, um, and I, and I think this is a, this move is a, is a move in, in a progressive and, and helpful um, direction as we become a bit, just a little, again, I don't want to belabor the point because, you know, uh, for example, you know, um, um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans communities continue to experience discrimination and oppression, um, degradation and violence. Mm-hmm. And that is not, that, that is not stopped by any means. I think I was reading a couple of years ago that, um, you know, that trans individuals uh, are more, have higher rates of, 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 you know, exposure to violence. And then I think I read, I don't recall, um, you know, a homicide um, compared to the general population. So clearly we've got a lot of work to do. I just think we've stepped in some, in some helpful directions in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. How, how does, what are some of, I guess, focusing in on interracial um, dynamics or relationships rather. Can you kind of briefly go through what the history of that has looked like? You're speaking from the US, um, so I'm happy for you to focus on that context as well. Um, but if you did know anything about how it worked on a global scale, you know, what does that look like in the past and how does that t- compare to what it looks like today? So, you know, let, let me start. And thanks so much for the invitation there. You know, you and I, Right before we started, we we're talking about a little bit of the, of the history there, um, and so I really appreciated your feedback and what, what you offered. Um, and so let's kind of get into this. You know, since 1960, so in, within the United States, there was a Supreme Court ruling in 1967. It's called you know Loving. I think it's Loving versus the State of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And what was happening was that there was this you know interracial couple, white male, black woman. Um, and, um, you know, they, they went to the Supreme court because they were aware, because I believe that they went through legal litigation and I think they were in prison for being, for being together, for being a couple, because interracial marriage was not legal at that time in many states, I think in 16 states, it wasn't legal. So it wasn't uniformly legal within the United States as recently as 1967, it was not legal throughout the United States. And so the Supreme Court struck down, and they called it back at that time, which is not, you know, not the best word is used, but they called it anti-miscegenation laws, which just means laws that were boring, uh, you know, interracial uh, of marriages. And the Supreme Court struck that down. And since that time, we have seen a, you know, significant increase 
in the numbers of interracial relationships in the U.S. I want to say that there are two things that happened at the same time within the 60s in the U.S. One was that 1967 ruling, right? And what I mean, two things that are responsible for the increases that we're seeing now in interracial relationships. One is that 1967 ruling. The other is the um, the Civil Rights Act, I believe, of 1960, 1964. Part of the Civil Rights Act was also there was some xenophobia around who was allowed to migrate into the United States at that time. So when they so when they you know passed the Civil Rights Act, they also ended this kind of xenophobic migration laws, which then allowed migration from you know parts of the world outside of of Europe, right? So you know, you know, uh, you know, uh, throughout the continent of Asia and 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 um, you know other other countries, other continents, right? And so, because of these things, because of both of these things, the um, ruling out the legality, making it legal to engage interracially, to marriage interracially, and because of the migrants from other parts of the world, you know, where where there are, you know strong communities and you know, you know people of color like like Asian and, and Latin American and countries in Africa, because of both of these things, we've seen strong numbers, strong increases in the numbers of, of, of interracial marriages. And so, so this is why we see it today. And this is why, look, within the United States, the groups that are doing, you know, within uh, BIPOC communities, you know, uh, individuals uh, who are Latinx, individuals who are of Asian descent, those are the groups, well, one BIPOC groups, who do the most interracial interracial dating, right? So you can understand how that how that the ending of these xenophobic migration laws has then led to this this significant increase in interracial relationships. And one thing I was talking to you about, I want to say number one, the same a very similar dynamic happened, you know, within Australia, where I talked really briefly about the the I think it's the Immigration Act of nineteen oh one, which again was you know I think it I'm not I'm not say anything groundbreaking when I say this was a xenophobic ruling um, and, it, and it was meant to try to sustain the, you know, the system of, of uh, racial inequality. Uh, and so in the U.S. we had very much, very much the same things that were geared towards. And one of, one of the goals of that was to, uh, of these xenophobic laws in the U.S. was to prevent uh, interracial dating and marriages. And one thing that I talked to you about is that, you know, um, uh, it, you know, the kind of uh, laws boring interracial relationships broadly now, broadly, not, I mean, beyond romance, um, you know, really took hold in the U.S. in order to sustain the legacy of enslavement. And, and so, you know, the fear was that if we allow, you know, race mixing, then we might, you know, then we're, because they were using, um, you know, you know, erroneous stereotypes to justify enslavement, saying that people of African descent, you know, had lower intelligence and obviously this was erroneous. But mm-hmm. it's, if we start allowing race mixing, then that might, you know, buck these kind of racist ideas we have that you were using to justify enslavement, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So they needed to come up with laws that would continue the separation of races. And these laws continued even after the cessation of enslavement with the, uh, you know, the separate versus the separate uh, but equal laws you know, Plessy versus Ferguson in the U.S., which basically said that, um, you, you know, we wanted to, in the, within the United States, when I say we, I mean white people, mainly wanted to keep the races separate, right? And again, it was to prevent 
this kind of integrating. It was all to, pre to prevent, by the way, the coming together um, of, of whites and blacks and who might, you know, if, if unified, uh, uh, really call for some, you know, strong systemic change. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, but my point is that all of these things um, were impacted, directly impacted, and were impacted by these kind of fears of, of, of uh, racial mixing, uh, that what might happen uh, if we allow the race to mix for better. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I, just to clarify, off the top of my head, I believe the Australian anti-immigration laws were explicitly called the White Australia policy. Uh, like, I think that was the legal name for it, which is a bit little, a little scary. But um, 1960, I think, is when it was officially repealed, but it took a little while for everything to catch up after that. Um, but I and, guess, and, sorry, sorry, yes, I continue. In 1960, not that long. I mean, I, I guess one of the points to make is not that long ago. You know, no. I mean, I you know it. You know, it's like, oh, that's way back when. It's different. It's like, well, is it? And so mm -hmm. we can look at some of the power structures. There, you know, and we can look at power structures within Australia and within the U.S. You know, when I say power structures, I mean if we look at government. You know, how how does government and who's who's in though? I'm not. You know, I, I, I was getting some feedback. My point is, my, my my deepest point is really we should we can look at you know. You know um, the power structures, and we can see that it really wasn't that long ago that we had these public laws in place. That's yeah. what I want. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I guess that that's kind of the past. Let's bring it to today. What are the challenges that interracial couples deal with today? Thanks so much for this question. Let's just lean right in, you know. Um, and, and the first thing I want to say is that, you know, you and I, and, and I was the one who submitted the request that we're, we're, we're using terms interracial romantic relationships. And I want to name that this term interracial, you know, it's, it's, it certainly isn't, isn't, isn't adequate. I mean, there are countries and communities where they would say, wait a minute, everyone here is interracial. We're all a mixture of, you know, different, you know, uh, races that, you know, have that 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 integrated, um, and so and so the recognition that you know that interracial probably not the it's not it's not it's inadequate, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's, it's certainly one of the better terms. It's 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 one of the more not pathologizing terms, but obviously that we have work to do and that we need to be mindful. When I say we, I'm really talking about myself and other people who have kind of centered our work around you know inter understanding interracial dynamics and relationships. We have work to do to be mindful of of our language uh, as we're talking about these kinds of union, unions and dynamics. Yeah. And now going back to your question, you know, which is what are the kinds of issues that, that interracial couples face? You know, I, I, again, the first thing I want to say is that interracial couples experience the same issues, number one, that all couples face, right? Um, and so I don't, you know, I, I want to be mindful that I don't run the risk of you know sensationalizing or or pathologizing these relationships, um, uh, so that that and primarily the issues that they experience, these couples experience, are the same issues that all couples experience, right? Communication difficulties and you know frustration with with their sex life and failure to take responsibility for self and blaming your partner and financial stress and struggles, um, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So. Um, you know, and so primarily, overwhelmingly, the issues that these couples experience are the same that that are experienced 
uh, among, you know, homogeneous racial couples, right? And I would say that any issues faced uniquely by mixed race couples are generally not due to, you know, the, the, the nature of their racial differences, but due to societal prejudices that, that these couples may encounter. And I just want to give one example that I'm going to guess, you know, your listeners are, are, are aware of. So there's no, I'm going to say the name Megan Mark, right? <laughs> there is no question in my mind that some of the vitriol and the, and the negative reaction that she has endured and received that's been directed towards her has been significantly because this is a woman of color. And, and of course, dealing with societal prejudices and biases can absolutely be harmful to the stability of, of any individual person and certainly any relationship. So I would say that, number one, it's dealing with societal biases and prejudices like Meghan Markle has to deal with. I'd say that if there's something else that's kind of uniquely meaningful within these unions, I would say, you know, sometimes if there are undiscussed and unprocessed differences in customs and traditions and rituals that we haven't reconciled, then that can also be an obstacle to relationship success. And what I'm talking about, one, ex one easy example is, you know, now how we decided you know, are we going to go to the mosque? Or are we going to go to the temple? Or have we decided what holiday we're going to celebrate and where we're going to trap? You know, you know, have we have we kind of talked about you know the kind of cultural mores that you that I bring you know differently and how we're going to integrate those? And I think if we don't have those discussions, you know, reconcile that, then that can certainly cause uh, barriers to relationship success. Mm -hmm. And when you were talking about, I guess you know. Conversations that just racial differences that just haven't been addressed. Um, a lot of that often happens because one party or one member of the relationship has a certain amount of privilege that means they haven't needed to analyze those differences and how they operate in those specific spheres uh, within society. So often those conversations just aren't had because someone is completely unaware that it needs to be had. Are you just couldn't be more right about that, yeah. and, and so uh, and so you know not being aware that it needs to be. I, I might also say that sometimes there's this there's this um, denial, kind of almost this see no evil, hear no evil thing. That if mm -hmm. if I don't talk about race, if I don't mention that there are racial differences, if I don't talk about culture, then there's no culture, there's no there's no racial problems. Here. So the only you know, and I you know, I kind of read about you know research that talks about this tendency. There's this model. This conceptual framework which looks at racism called colorblind racial attitudes is basically this idea uh, that some that, that, that some of us have sometime that the problems there are any racial problems in society are because people are talking about race that as long as we don't talk about it and as long as I say that I don't see any any differences and that there are no problems then there are no problems right and now this is erroneous and it's also problematic because it really denies the existence and the harmfulness of racial oppression throughout society. And so then, as you mentioned, right, with real wisdom, that this is, can then be brought into the relationship. Um, and that, you know, if, if I might sustain my denial of all racial differences. One, like you said, because I just genuinely 
I'm not aware. I'm not aware of my own privilege. And, and this happens, especially when one partner within the, within the relationship is a member of the dominant group, you know, the dominant white racial group there, uh, and, and not aware of the privilege that comes with, with being white. And not aware that one of those privileges that comes with being white is to say, I don't see color and I don't see any difference and that there are no problems here, right? Meanwhile, if, if, the, if their partner is a member of a BIPOC group, then they're countering, they're, they're on the, you know, um, receiving in of racism daily, right? I mean, you know, kind of continually. So really denying their everyday lived experiences. And so this kind of denial can absolutely be harmful to, uh, uh, to a relationship. And, and certainly one thing that I recommend is, you know, letting go of this and, and starting to uh, check in and just like, you know, you know, you and I did before we started here, having a real discussion about racial differences and, and cultural context and, and what does it mean to grow up? I think sometimes that for white people, um, their their cultural context can feel really um, tough, it, not not tangible to them. So you might say, what, what's your culture? They go, I, don't, I don't have a culture. I'm, you know, I, you know, uh, and I mean, especially within the United States, I think to some degree, maybe to a less degree, um, in Australia, you, you can speak to that more than I could certainly. Um, but this, but, but not you know, not being aware that you know you know your you know your um, you know perspective and your outlook on life and places you go, decisions you make, you know uh, all of that is informed by your culture. That is your culture, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, you know. Giving that invitation to you know uh, to, uh, uh, for them to try to understand uh, how does your culture inform your worldview and inform how that plays out in our in our inform how you treat me within our relationship, right? Yeah. Because if you're saying that racism don't exist, then you're also saying it doesn't exist here within us, between us, within this diet or within this relationship, I should say, which by itself is an act of denied violated experience barrier. So, yeah. you know, one of the things I recommend in that context is, you know, opening up uh, um, the relationship to serious discussions about race and racial justice. Mm, yeah, I guess that kind of points me to my next question as well, which is how can interracial couples navigate and discuss those cultural differences within their relationship? And, and so, you know, I, I mentioned before that, um, Part of it involves letting go of this denial that that racism doesn't exist. Uh, Mm -hmm. A few other things that I would recommend. Number one, um, let go of perfection. There is no perfect time to discuss racial differences. There is no magic moment or ideal situation atmosphere. It's only the choice to prioritize these dialogues. You know, uh, you know, years ago I worked at a university and I had a supervisee, and I would always, I would often say, hey. Is right now a good time for us to talk about, you know, your work or to give you that evaluation? And he would always say, "There is no good time." Mm-hmm. You know, look, it's 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 eight fifteen here at night. We're having a you know a two hour podcast. This is not a good time. You know, there is no good time. There's there's only you know prioritizing dialogues. Uh, yeah. uh, so letting go of the idea that I'm waiting for the right time. No, there's only the decision to engage your own inner courage and, and have the discussion. And speaking of no perfect time, there's no perfect way to discuss racism, 
Talking about cultural differences is an act of courage. It's okay to let go of preconceived notions and ideas about how this discussion must proceed. You're probably not going to get it right. It's not going to be perfect. Um, and I would absolutely encourage, you know, honesty and candor. I, I would say this, though, about that. I would say that I, I would encourage uh, honesty and candor with compassion, right? So so honesty without compassion is injurious, right? That's what my meditation teacher would, would wisdom share with me one day. So you want to be open and honest. You want to have the willingness to look inward, and you want to express yourself thinking of how this might, you know, impact your partner. <laughs> the other thing that I'm going to recommend is um, if your partner confronts your microaggressions, this is a good time. This is a great opportunity to engage in the process of listening and learning. If your partner believes that you have endorsed a racial microaggression, instead of avoiding the topic, or instead of becoming defenses, defensive, I'm recommending you one, take a breath. It's not easy to hear that, you know, especially if, if you're a white person, you haven't thought of yourself that way. It's not easy to hear. Uh, the second thing I might encourage you to do, these are tools I'm giving you now, locate the discomfort in the body. And then ask yourself these questions. Why am I feeling so defensive? Mm-hmm. Ask yourself, what would it mean if I did commit a racial microaggression? What do I believe that would say about me? And I would encourage you to ask yourself, am I right now grounded in a, you know, a, a, you know, a, a healthy emotional space uh, in which I can listen and consider my partner's feedback? Right. If not, if we're not there, it's okay to say, look, I heard what you say. We take a time out. I just want to, you know, take a walk or take a break or think of what you're saying. And then once you kind of grounded yourself again, most importantly, come back to the discussion. So don't lose taking a time out to avoid talking about this discussion. You know, this is a good time to ground yourself, but then come back to the discussion. Right. Yeah. The other thing I'd recommend is. Don't make this discussion a one-shot deal. This was not a you know a, a box that you're checking. Oh, we had that racial discussion. Now we're good. No. In order to fully understand each other's cultural background and how these cultural differences have impacted your respective lives and how they might be impacting the relationship. There needs to be ongoing dialogues about these differences. Right. Ongoing. We're not just talking about it Sunday and we were done with it. You know, I would say talk about it early and often. And also keep in mind that it's not the responsibility of one person in the relationship to bring up race and racism and cultural differences. Too often, that responsibility falls on uh, BIPOC communities to talk about race and racism. Uh, so I'm saying that don't wait for your partner to bring it up. No. Uh, you have responsibility to bring this up as well. Um, and then I, the last thing I would say is that don't make it your partner's responsibility to educate you on their on on their culture. 
Yeah. You know, as I was told, you know, years ago, Google, you know, <laughs> when there is just an abundance of information that you can, you know, and, and really, I want to encourage you to make it your business, make it your business to read and to engage and to, you know, travel, explore, experience, right? Um, <laughs> you know, I would also say, I would also caution against, um, uh, uh, generalizes. So if I read something about a certain culture, don't assume that your partner then had the exact same outlook, experiences, and because we know cultures are not monolithic, right? This is a good time to, to maybe ask. You know, I you know I read about X and Y in this netbook. You know, what do you think? What's been your experience? You know, so we're not we're we're reading to educate ourselves. We're not putting this all on our partner, but we're also not assuming that because we've read something that we now understand that. Um, so they are the expert on their lived experience. It's your responsibility to educate yourself on their cultural context. So those are the things that I recommend keeping in mind that I think will contribute to a much more cohesive and productive discussion about cultural racial differences. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I guess where, where does community come into this you know family friends H how does that impact uh the interracial couple you mentioned Meghan Markle earlier um and we 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 did all see how that played out at least on one side of the family so yeah mm -hmm. yeah um but, you know so, so you know you mentioned family and um listen you know I mentioned what's changed since 1967. And I mentioned that there's a lot of evidence that in the United States, um, uh, there have been this, you know, you know, kind of increasing amount of interracial couples. Um, and yet we also know that there are a lot of people who continue to disapprove of interracial relationships and family approval is relevant, right? So there's a study by, you know, Miller and other people have recently, I think a year ago, uh, which found that um, young adults who believe that their siblings and parents and grandparents approve of interracial relationships have greater odds themselves of engaging in interracial relationships. You know, family approval can also mitigate the impact of societal racism. So I said <laughs> earlier today that one of the things that's really harmful and uniquely impactful to interracial couples um, uh, is societal racism. Well, family approval and affirmation can mitigate the negative impact of societal racism, you know. Uh, furthermore, other studies have shown that those individuals whose uh, family members engage in interracial dating, so if you have a, you know, cousin or aunt or you know, somebody in the family who you're aware of uh, has engaged in, in interracial dating, that makes you twice as likely yourself to engage in interracial relationships. So family members kind of support me through their own engagement um, in interracial relationships. They communicate to, you know, to, to those around them that, that race and ethnicity uh, should not be a deterrent in, in, the, in the partner selection process. Uh, uh, and that, you know, interracial relationships or, or, you know, or valued or appreciated or accepted within the family, you know. Now, there are also ways that 
families can sometimes subtly, sometimes overtly communicate that they are not open to interracial relationships. Um, uh, you know, and a few examples of these are, you know, um, not inviting the partner to social or family events, you know, not asking about the partner, not asking about the partner, you know, and I said that twice because it's just that significant because it sends a clear message. It, it, it kind of renders your relationship invisible or at least closeted, mm-hmm. right? So there's a there's a bit of kind of underlying racial hostility when we engage in that kind of behavior. Uh, something else is, um, um, you know, uh, uh, it, this can also have a, a negative impact and lead to increased relationship stress as those involved in the relationship now are kind of stuck wondering how to navigate mm-hmm. the lack of acceptance within, you know, your family and my family, you know, um, does that mean, and, and then they have questions that they might, you know, feel the need to confront, you know, um, should we, you know, spend less time with the family? Should we vacate? Meaning, should we move to a different kind of, you know, um, should we change our geography, right? So they've got to consider at this point, um, what kind of coping skills do we engage in uh, in order to mitigate the impact of the lack of family acceptance? So this can directly, can, this can directly impact the success of the relationship. And, you know, again, I don't know, yeah, I'm no expert in, the, the British Royal family, I don't, I don't tend to be, I don't eat as, I, I you know, I'm from the, you know, the U.S., we got enough going on here. Um, but I am aware, though, that, you know, that, that, that Megan Mark will, that they moved, that they moved over here, you know. Um, and so maybe, I don't, they haven't talked to me about it, but maybe that was partially uh, in order to get away from the vitriol that they were experiencing, both kind of in the family as well as in the kind of broader community that they, that they were that they, you know, were in uh, overseas. Mm-hmm. And something like, something that came to mind when you were talking about that is, uh, you know, Bi- BIPOC communities especially tend to be quite family and community oriented as as compared to white um, communities. And that is a generalization. Obviously, things are different within various communities and there are various uh levels to that but often that family approval can take on much greater importance in 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 community oriented cultures and so you and i talked about before before yeah. we start recording the film this is masala which yeah. I, which i think is just a really good um kind of reflection of just what you're talking about there i might reference the audience to, to watch it and then come back and listen of uh, to, to what i'm going to say next <laughs> so you can get some context there but but the, the point is that within the movie, really briefly, that that was something that she struggled with really close to the family, not just the immediate family, but the broader family, right? So when we talk about collectivistic cultures, family is is not just beyond the quote-unquote nuclear family, but family also consists of the broader, you know, family. And within my own fa- family, you know, that, that family extends beyond the biological. That, you know, you know, growing up, my grandmother would say, oh, yeah, well, that's my, that's my sister, you know, or... Or and we say within my community, we say all the time, we, we say to other black men, hey, brother, how you doing, right? We're not blood related necessarily, you know, uh, but, but this is the idea that family extends beyond the biological, right? So we have these kinds of indicators baked into the language um, that kind of highlight just how family orienting certain cultures are. And so then what does that mean? And, 
And what is the impact um, if the family now disproves? And one thing that I that I ask, you know, is, you know, what what are the messages that you know you receive from family about interracial relationships? You know, and maybe you receive those messages explicitly, like they said things, like like in that movie, Mr. Masala, they they were starting to explicit and saying things, but maybe it was implicit, you know. And you received the message because, well, everyone else was dating someone of the same race, same culture, same geographic background, you know, same, you know, kind of, you know, local community, um, same class, right? Um, and so and so then you got the message that then this is what I need to do. So then what does it mean for you when you step outside of that? One other thing I'll say about this is that there's also an indicator from research that there's a hierarchy in the acceptance of interracial relationships. So here's what I mean. That um, uh, that certain dyads within quote unquote mainstream U.S. are more accepted than other dyads, right? Uh, so you know, looking at the research, you know, some of the articles that use a kind of qualitative lens, you know, like some of the respondents would say, well, you know, <clears throat> if the person is, you know, a, a person of color, you know, um, you know, they might say, well, the family wanted me to date someone of my own cultural background, but they certainly didn't want me to date someone who was black. They said, okay, you got to go outside the race, then, you know. So there's this kind of hierarchy of the acceptance of interracial relationships as well. And this hierarchy might be at least a little bit of why, only a little bit, because there's a lot of research, it's really complex, but it might be a little bit why rates of interracial dating and marriage are the highest among Latinx and, and individuals of any descent and much lower within the African-American community, lots of other reasons for that, by the way. I'm not saying that's the only reason. It's not. Um, and then I can answer some other reasons if you'd like. Uh, but but I'd be remiss if I didn't name that there still exists a racial hierarchy based on, you know, the kind of empirical research that I've looked at, you know, even among BIPOC groups. Uh, and it kind of plays out, you know, within the acceptance rates of different diets of interracial relationships. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I would I would love to chat about that, but in the interest of time, <laughs> I might move on uh, to the next question. I guess with all of that in mind, are there what, what resources are available um, for interracial couples that will help them navigate these challenges um, or any challenges they may face? And are there, you know, are there support systems as well, especially for those people who might not be getting that that family support? Is, is there is there a way for them to deal with that externally? So this is a great question. Let's just jump right in. You know, so the one thing I would say is that I think it's important. It's important for, again, any couple. Again, the issues overwhelmingly that interracial couples face are consistent and growing with those that all couples face, right? So it's important for any couple and it's important for interracial couples uh, to build a social support system, a system of like-minded individuals and allies, uh, a space where, where you'll always have a safe space, uh, uh, maybe a space where you can connect with individuals who might be experiencing you know, similar things. It might be worth your time to seek out, you know, social media, uh, you know, uh, uh, groups that are kind of focused on, you know, intercultural, interracial relationships. For example, I am aware that there are Facebook, uh, Facebook group for interracial married couples and families. Um, there are also a plethora of books and blogs and 
blogs and podcasts such as this one, which discuss interracial dating and marriage. I'm going to throw out a few podcast titles. There's this one that's called Militantly Mixed. Um, there's another that's called Truth and Coffee Time with Diverse Love. So, so these are podcasts. I mentioned Cold Switch earlier, has a few episodes. These are podcasts that are dedicated to talking about these kind of complex issues, the same ones that we're unfolding right now. Probably wouldn't hurt, although look, I, I as a therapist myself, I recommend this to every relationship, but I don't care how happy you are. Uh, wouldn't hurt to seek out, you know, for, you know, mental health support. And when I say that, I'm talking uniquely about uh, experts uh, who are especially experts in, you know, you know, working and understanding the the plethora of dynamics surrounding, you know, interracial, you know, couples and families. I, I also think it's it's important that um, you know you all t- talk and talk about it, that the couple themselves talk and talk about how do we respond when we experience these kind of obstacles? How do we want to deal with this? How do we want to respond to this? Uh, uh, and, and so that way that, you know, if nothing else, there'll, there'll, there'll be support within the relationship, uh, even when there's not that support outside of the relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I might, you know, I, I guess I might move on to I think that's a great time to segue to the next part, uh, next segment of our of our show, which is the practice habit experiment debrief, um, where we try and take everything we've learned and apply it to some form of application or practice um, that anyone can do at home. Do you do you have anything in mind that you wanted to talk about in this section? What's a practice that you do to deal with perhaps some of the struggles that interracial dynamics can bring up? International, inter, interracial relationships. I keep using relationship and dynamic interchangeably, and I shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. Oh, I, I do. I do have one. And look, this is something that um, I, I would recommend to any, you know, whether you're involved interracially uh, or not, it, you know, um, you know, anyone can use this. You don't have to be struggling to use this. Uh, it's something I, I use. It's a tool I often give this to clients. Uh, as a really quick tool you can use when you feel overwhelmed, when you're buried to the most of the stress. Um, <clears throat> and so I mentioned earlier that I'm a mindful self-compassion teacher. Um, and so uh, this is something that really embedded within self-compassion practice. And it's called the self-compassion break. And it's got three levels to it. I'm going to explain each level. And I'm going to kind of walk through exactly how you can use it. You can use it right now, if, if, you know, you know, and, uh, other than you can use this right right now if you, if you'd like to. Um, what was that? No, absolutely. I'm happy to. <laughs> awesome. Oh, well, then I tell you what. I walked through it, and then yep. we'll come back, and and I'll just kind of facilitate that for you. How does that sound? That sounds great. That sounds great. Oh, cool. I don't right, know so how well go. I will perform on camera as opposed to by myself, but we'll give it a go anyway. <laughs> I, mean, I appreciate your openness there. So so um so so the 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 self compassion break. So self compassion. Mm-hmm. Right. Self-compassion is really the antidote to shame. It's the antidote to, I think, a lot of other kinds of psychological or emotional distress. And self-compassion has three levels to it. The first level is awareness. And here's what I mean. In order to, to, to bring ourselves self-compassion, we need to be aware that we are experiencing a difficulty. So the first level just involves you, as I said earlier, going inward and noticing, what am I feeling right now? What emotion is present right now? 
what is the difficulty right now? And just naming that, oh, I'm feeling frustrated or I'm feeling tired because it's, you know, 8.30 and here I, here I am, you know, kind of, you know, I, I'm joking, obviously, I'm having a really good time, to be clear, but, but uh, you know, but it's, it's just looking at what and just naming what's present. That's all. That's the awareness level, right? And that's mindfulness. Mindfulness is, we can define mindfulness really quickly as knowing what you're experiencing while you're experiencing. So the broader definition of a lot of them, but it's the moment-to-moment experience without judgment, with compassion. So it's just knowing what you're experiencing while you're experiencing right now unveiling. The second layer is common humanity. It's the recognition that no matter what you're going through, you're not the only one that's going through it. That there are people right now that are going through the same thing. That there are people in the past of all through what you've gone through before. And this is absolutely true for the rest of couples. It's stressful because of, you know, if you're Meghan Markle, and I think Prince Harry is his name, you got to know that you're not the first. You're, you're not even the first, you know, kind of people within a raw family within other countries, that is, you know. Um, so you're not, so then you're not alone. You're not alone. And then the third level is self-kindness, bringing in self-kindness to yourself, right? Bring in self-kindness. All right, so so those are the three levels, and, and so I'm just going to walk through that really briefly. You said you're open to that. won't take yes. long. Yes. All right, so I just want you to take a moment mm-hmm. and just think of any kind of difficulty. Think you can, you know, if, if, zero, if it's a zero to 10 and 10 is a really kind of a crisis difficulty that picks something on the lower end of things and that and that a one to four range of difficulty. Just pick mm-hmm. that and then let me know when you got that in your mind. So I guess just something that I'm experiencing right now, like a difficult. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I joked, I've joked about this on the show before, but being on camera makes me very nervous <laughs> and it's weird. It's weird because this is my job. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I'm just a, kind of a low to medium level anxious I think every time I host um in general um so that's probably I guess the main the main thing right now is I do feel quite nervous quite self-conscious in particular um yeah yeah yes thanks so much for your openness there and I hear you saying that um that you know you know it's a job and it's it, there's a nervousness that's present sometimes and um and self-consciousness there is that is that what uh, here is that right yeah 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 okay so we've named it all right so then the first thing i want you to do this is the awareness part mm-hmm. is just kind of inwardly remind yourself that uh this is sometimes challenging that nervousness this is a moment of discomfort this is a moment of discomfort. In self-compassion, we might say, this is a moment of self-wound. This is a moment of nervousness. This is a moment of discomfort. And let me know when you just said that that N would be named. Yeah, yeah. I've said it in my All head. Right. Yes. All right. The next thing is this. Common humanity. So this is the awareness. Is it, is it fair to say, would you agree mm-hmm. that there might be other people who are also in mainstream media and 
they've got their own show and they're they're rocking the mic or they're on stage or and that they also can relate to the nervousness that you yeah i would definitely say so for sure can yeah. you think of anyone else who's actually said i i don't that's really nervousness or blow my job i can't think of any specific examples there was a um there was a journalist i spoke to once a broadcast journalist who says they they've been working in the industry for about 20 years, but they're still not fully comfortable in front of the camera. It's just, I I cannot remember who their name was. I spoke to them just passing in passing at a, at a conference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when they shared that, could you relate to that? I could relate. Yeah. I mean, it was also a bit frightening (laughs) that the feeling never goes away. Um, but yeah, I could definitely relate. Yeah. 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 So it was both of those things. It was like, oh, okay. So I'm not the only one. And it was like, oh, I want this feeling gone. It's still, you still got it. Right. Burn. All right. And so then the last level, so that's common humanity we just did. Then the last level is the self kindness. Now, here's my question I want you to imagine whoever picked somebody closest to you, you know, you just kind of pick them in your mind and let me know when you got them. Whoever is the closest to you? Physically or emotionally? Uh, emotionally. Emotionally. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You got them. All right. I want you to imagine that that person, that person comes to you one day or maybe tonight or tomorrow, and they're like, hey, look, um, I'm a little stressed. You're like, well, what's going on? I'm like, well, because I get nervous for time I go to do my job. I feel nervousness. Doesn't feel good. I want it gone. And they're coming to you now. They're coming to you for support, you know, because they know you care about them, you know. What would you say to them? What would you want them to know? I would want them to know that even if they're nervous, it doesn't really show. Um, and they're really good at their job. So even if I, it's going to be hard to get rid of the feeling, but it, it they don't really have anything to be nervous about, if that if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah so you tell them that, you know, uh, you're good at your job, yeah. and it, even if you feel it inwardly, it doesn't show. Yeah. Um, and you, you're good at it, so you have nothing to be nervous about. Yeah. Anything else you want them to know? Anything else all that they need to know to feel your support? Um. Yeah. Just. I would kind of, I guess, tell them that they can always just vent to me if they need to. Yeah. I'm yeah. here for you. If you ever need to, you can talk to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, could you take a moment? Yeah. And if you can say all of those things, just take a moment and just say them all in just towards you. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy to say to myself, but I think I did it. <laughs> not easy yeah. to do. Yeah. Not easy. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's one that's one area of well, let me I could ask it differently. What would what would you want your friend to say to you? Hmm. Pretty much the same kind of thing. 
<laughs> pretty much that yeah i think i mean what else i don't know i can't really think of anything else that i would want to hear that's different oh, oh. so yeah when they would say you're good at your job um you know it doesn't show mm. that's the kind of stuff you'd want to hear as well mm -hmm. yeah yeah so then that's that's self-compassion. That self-compassion ultimately is treating ourselves, responding to ourselves the way we would a close friend of ours. Yeah. Giving to ourselves that same kind of empathy, that same kind of support. Um, yeah. And so then this is something that I might encourage your audience to do. They can also, you know, you know, what would you say to a close friend that is struggling? I wish you want to hear from a close friend, you know, and that reminder that come and meditate, you're not alone, you're not thinking anymore. Does that make sense? That makes so much sense, yeah. And it is strange how difficult it is to be kind to ourselves and be compassionate with ourselves the way that I think we're so readily available to be compassionate to the people that are important to us. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah, And you notice it right away that when it was, when you, when I said, tell somebody else, you said, okay, well, I will tell them this and that and this. Mm -hmm. When I said, okay, give that to you. You were like, okay, that's a little, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's a little tougher. And, and that's exactly what the research, I mean, that's exactly how it is that a lot of us have been taught that, you know, the way to stay motivated, you know, I gotta be, uh, I gotta be, uh, you know, tough love all the time, get better, do this, what are you doing? And, you know, and we think that that's gonna motivate us. And the research mm -hmm. says actually, that kindness is really giving us motivation, but it's so tough because a lot of us, it's, it's really tough for us to, to, to do that, you know? Um, and so then we, we say in mindfulness of compassion, you know, um, that one of the goals in or part of the, our work, or we say part of the practice is practicing, practicing, um, treating ourselves the way we would a good friend. And that was why in the example I said, well, what would you tell the close friend? I went to that first, right? Um, so then we can say, well, can you sit with that language? It takes time and it's hard. So um, it's hard for me. It's just not easy to do it all. Um, and so uh, um, it's something that, you know, the benefit of it is that, you know, you don't need to feel any differently than you feel. You don't need to be anyone else. You can feel exactly how you feel and then bring in that, that moment of self-compassion. Um, and sometimes it's doing it just like we did it, which is, well, if it was, I might say, if I was my mentor, if I was Joe White, what would I say to me? And I got to think of him. I got to think mm -hmm. of his voice. And then I'm like, oh, there's the compassion. Now I hear it. Or with my grandmother, what would she say? Oh, now I feel the compassion. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure, so, for sure. No, that makes so much sense. And I... <laughs> Yeah, again, it's a challenging one. As I was doing it, I was like, oh, that was very, very difficult for me to be compassionate to myself. Um, but I'm, I'm sure, as you said, you know, you find it difficult. I'm sure neither of us are alone in that. I think it's just a natural state of being, unfortunately. I, I guess with with kind of the this tool, this set of questions, how how often should you practice this? Is there a time you should do it? Is there like an interval at which you should complete it? 
when when is it most beneficial? How is it most beneficial? Great question here. So um, so I, I would say with something like the self-compassion break, again, that's something you can use early and often. It, it doesn't need to take long. It can literally take like 20 seconds. I'm feeling tired or frustrated. I'm not alone in that. And now what would, you know, I think they say to me if, mm-hmm. if she heard me say that, right? There's also, I might encourage, you know, listeners to, to just put in YouTube self-compassion break, Chris Germer, and he can walk you through a, a five to six minute meditation. It's, he, he does a self-compassion. One of the ways that he does it, and this is, this is you know, his tool um, or him and Chris Neff's tool. One of the ways that he does it is through a, a brief meditation. And mm-hmm. so you can literally, you know, if, if, if you're a meditator then you know, you can use this through meditating. If you're not, that's fine as well. You can be in a, on a crowded tram or a train or a bus. No one needs to know what you're thinking to yourself as you're like, crowded, this doesn't feel good. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm feeling uncomfortable. All right, this is a moment of discomfort. All right. And here's the thing about naming that. We know from research that sometimes just by naming how you feel in the moment, that can, re- that can reduce the potency of that emotion. So sometimes just name it, oh, I feel angry. So that can pause or reduce the anger. So I yeah. would say that the good thing about this tool is that there really is no wrong time to use it, especially when you're experiencing distress. That's a great time to bring compassion to yourself. There's no wrong time. There's no wrong way to, or there's no wrong time to bring self-compassion to yourself. Um, but I would say, especially when you're experiencing you know, when those, when you experience those things, sometimes overwhelming feeling, yeah. you know, and then you can go ahead and name it, remind yourself that you're not alone and seem to bring a little, a little self-kindness. Mm, yeah. And, and when you, when you kind of encouraged me to do the practice, you said kind of on a scale of one to 10, look at that kind of one to four kind of level. Is there perhaps, is there, is there a pure point of distress or, a situation of distress where it's perhaps too high on the scale to practice it or or is it just kind of universal so you know this is a great question um so so i said one to four because i you know we're live and i i, I didn't yeah. you know um i wanted to make sure that we you know you, you know i was mindful about a few things but in terms of to the audience um you know i would say this Keep in mind with the self-compassion break that the goal is to increase Mm self-compassion. So we stay with that goal, then we're in a healthy place and we can use that no matter matter what's going on, right? Um, Sometimes you might think, well, I just did a compassion break and I still feel nervous or I still feel frustrated. Well, because the goal was to increase self-compassion the frustration might hang out. It might still be there. So if we hold on to that as our intention to be more so compassionate, then I think you can use it whenever. I, I would also say that the tool is not um it's 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 not a utopia, meaning you still want to do all of the other kind of good self-care things that you're already doing, you know, um, you know, eating, exercising, sleeping, talking to family and loved ones. You know, if you go to a therapist, going to a therapist or, you know, taking care of yourself and all of the other 
kinds of race reading, you know, different thing, whatever you want, dancing, you know, whatever the fun stuff is that 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 you all do, uh, that 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 people do, keep doing that stuff, right? Self compassion breaks not going to take the place of any of that stuff. It's just something to add to the toolbox, and then we're giving another tool to put in the box. And what I'm saying about it is that there's no wrong time to use it, um, and uh, and and the goal when you use it is is to remember that we're we're part of the human family. We're still we're not alone in this, and yeah. that we can bring self compassion to take advantage of all the big feelings that we have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I might. I think I put that section to an end for now, um, and and move on to. We've got our open mic segment um, where I allow you, our guest, to have a mini TED talk <laughs> about about whatever you feel needs to be addressed at the moment. What is it that you wanted to chat about today, Dr. Johnson? Yeah, I, I, I'll keep the thing the same thing. You know, we're, we're talking. It's funny. I got to say, at the moment, I'm aware that I could easily spend the next hour talking about mindful self-compassion or, or mindfulness because... That's something that's really meaningful and important to me. Uh, we've been talking about interracial relationships. By the way, real quickly, as a part of my riff, I guess that I, I hope I made it clear how uh, my how the self compassion break can be relevant to interracial couples. You know, especially that reminder that you're not alone in your experience there, uh, and, and bringing in self compassion. But I'll just keep the theme right here. You and I, and, and um, uh, we're talking to. Uh, um, Jerry, I don't know if I can say the, the name or not, you know, I just did. But we're talking about, you know, um, uh, how interracial couples uh, and how these dynamics are portrayed within movies. And so we, I might kind of circle back to that dynamic and I might just start off the same way I did that brief discussion by asking if, you know, what what TV shows and movies, you know, can you think of that in your, in your opinion did, you know, a, a good job of frankly or did a bad job? Mm-hmm. In in portraying um, interracial couples and families. Mm. Well, we already talked about Mississippi Masala and how I mean we were talking earlier about what it got right and what it got wrong. Um, you know, before we started recording. But Jerry, who is we can definitely talk about Jerry. He is a <laughs> guest of the show sometimes. Um, brought up the Big Sick as well, which I have seen. That's a fantastic movie about um, uh, a Pakistani. Uh, Kumail Nanjiani, are you familiar with him, um, the comedian? No. Yeah, he's uh, he um, and he actually wrote it with because he's in an interracial relationship himself. So he wrote it with together with his wife um, about the dynamics of their relationship. So that's why it felt like a very, you know, there was no. It, it felt very nuanced because of it because you know they were both speaking from experience. So that's another example for movie I really liked. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so and then yeah, when you mentioned um, that is Mrs. Masala, and what was it about that one that you found really kind of meaningful? Honestly, or- like I, for me, I didn't. It's more like as someone who is South Asian, um, and kind of it, it's a movie that's kind of often brought up as an example of an interracial relationship, I guess, amongst our community. It's not so much something that we kind of point out as like ideal or not, but it's one of those movies that kind of tackle, you know, 
in a really hard-hitting way what it is to be in an interracial relationship, specifically, I think, from the South Asian perspective um, and, and the kind of uncomfortable conversations it can raise. I think that's something that comes up quite a bit. On it, I just also just came to mind as a bit different, um, but uh, Bridgerton uh, season two, there was a, a interracial relationship in that as well. I don't know if it was handled well or not. Um, it didn't really address race specifically, and Bridgerton has its own issues about how it handles race as well uh, that are widely written about in the media. But uh, that's what recently comes to mind. I'm really sorry about that, Adiki. What were you saying at the end there? What you um, Bridgerton, um, the show Bridgerton, season two had um, featured, the main couple was an interracial one. Again, uh, Bridgerton's not like the best example as to, you know, they don't really address race very much. And when they have, it's been kind of just ham-fisted. Um, but I don't think people watch it for a hard-hitting negotiation of an interracial relationship, honestly. Uh, so I guess it's it's just one of those things. But that's a recent example uh, that's come up for sure. I, I watched like two episodes in the first season. And I never watched again. What, what, what was it about? How can we die? How can I unpack what, what happened on season two? Um, so I, I haven't seen season one, so I can't compare the two. I just skipped it and watched season two. Um, season two is about uh, Kate, so the main character from season one's older brother um, and Kate Sharma, who is just immigrated from uh, British Empire-held India, um, along with her sister. And the two of them are trying to re-enter um, British society and navigate that, essentially. Um, and they, I mean, they did some interesting things with regards to making it clear that, you know, she was, she's, she still had roots um, in India, um, in her culture. In particular, her sister, her younger half-sister was, their par her parents or her grandparents are part of British society, but the main character herself is kind of not... It's a bit complicated. Again, um, very ham-fisted references to how they handle race uh, specifically and cultural differences specifically. But um, I think overwhelmingly positive. Most people reacted well to that one as opposed to season one. Season one raised often a lot of issues, but season two people generally seem to see more favorably. And you felt the same way. I felt the same way. Again, I haven't seen season one. I want to reiterate that I can't really compare. I watched a recap video before I watched season two. Um, right. And I, I, I think in general, um, for my friends who have seen both seasons, they say that it's, it's generally a lot better, um, mainly because they don't uh, seem to try too hard to... They had, some weird, they had some weird references in season one that they kind of just avoid in season two. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe I need to catch up on Bridget in season two. That you know, um, maybe. Sound like you recommend? I don't. I, I'm, I'm open to to giving it a look. You know, one of the I'm thinking about it as you're sharing, and one of the there are just a lot that are not very good. And I, as I was researching for this podcast, I was like, you know, I having a hard time finding one that I think that that I thought kind of did justice to uh, to that I thought was nuanced and complex enough. Mm -hmm. um, and didn't avoid, you know, uh, too many things and you didn't sensationalize it. But I think sometimes that um, on TV, what you run into is either the uh, one extreme, which is a complete denial that this is relevant at all, or it's the other extreme, which is the sensationalization. It becomes real salacious and, and, and bordering pathologizing, if not fully pathologizing. So, you know, I'm going to name a few that kind of, 
you know, and you know, you mentioned um, Britain, uh, uh, British TV, and um, Luther um, uh, sees, which is um, Idris, Idris um, Elba, yeah. Elba, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I'm a big Luther fan. Before I, I don't want to get the wrath of the Luther fans here. I'm a, I'm a big Luther fan. You know, Luther was involved in the character I'm talking about. Was involved in interracial relationships, um, and in some ways, I thought the relationship. In the absence of racial dynamics, I thought this is a real complex relationship. But the problem is that there was no analysis. There was no there was never reflection of of, of it being an interracial relationship. And, and this is when you know, obviously, the, the, I think he was with Wilson uh, at the end. But then early, I can't. I'm blanking on the name of of his of his wife at the beginning. Did you have you watched Luther? I've not watched Luther. No, I I've seen many scenes from it, but no, I've not watched Luther as a whole. Well, I, I'm blanking on the name of his of his wife to start with. But my point is that it was, but these were interracial relationships, and there was no time that there was a reflection of that, of that, mm-hmm. and what that means. You know, the other thing about his character is that mostly, again, and I said this to you, I think prior to us starting, that you know his character was denied intimacy, like he was denied a close, intimate relationship either with his to, to lesser degree with his ex-wife a little bit but certainly not with, with, with Ruth Wilson's character who seemed to really have deep affection for him but they didn't allow his character to you know engage and when I say intimacy I don't strictly mean sex I mean this kind of you know I mean any kind of closeness that might include you know physical contact right um and also the other problem is that Luther himself didn't have a community you know mm-hmm. like you know, parents are, you know, uh, cousins or, um, you know, just kind of, you know. And, and so, um, and, and this is often the, the ways that, um, sadly, this is one of the ways that, you know, racism is displayed on screen. You know, kind of the, a character in this case was a black male, void of any kind of community and also um, void of any kind of, 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 of intimacy or closeness uh, with, with someone else. Um, so, you know, this was, you know, I, and so this was a problem. There's a movie on Netflix right now. I don't mind. I encourage you all to watch it because it's really bad, but it's with, it's with, um, Lucy Lou's great. Um, and, uh, I can't believe I'm, I'm blanking on, uh, on, uh, the name of, of Lucy Lou's, um, uh, of her, of the love interest of uh, there in the movie. It's called, it's called, um, set it up there um ah, so uh, i'm aware of the i'm aware of the movie yes um oh who's the actor i cannot remember who the actor's name is off the top of my so head he was no. in he was he started in how stella got her groove back mm-hmm. um he sees um i think he was in um my best friend's yeah i think he was in my best friend's wedding he's been in a lot of a lot of good a lot of great movies um but the point is that him and Lucy, there's this interracial engagement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, you know, his character and both of their characters are really resented in this pathologizing way, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of caricature. And, you know, what I've noticed sometimes is that there's, you know, I mentioned that in Luther, there's this theme that race does not matter. And there's some movies and TV shows where you have interracial couples together. There's no reflection on race as if we're living in this kind of colorblind society. 
I talked earlier that this is erroneous and all that does is reinforce racism and white supremacy, right? So then there are other movies where they say that, you know, the, the message or one of the underlying messages is that the couple can't be together because they just have way too many problems. And this is, and this is how this, this uh, set up unfolds. And what's worse is that this is a black man, one of the stars of it, and they portray his character as being a womanizer and that that's one of the reasons that he, you know, he, it won't work out between him and Lucy Liu, right? So this is a clear, you know, an overt stereotype of, of, a, of a black man. And Lucy Liu, by the way, was also presented, and I think, to a lesser degree, but also I think uh, was pre- presented uh, in these kind of problematic, you know, um, um, stereotype. Uh, almost pathologizing ways. What was that? Sorry. Uh, like a stereotype, I guess, of an Asian woman. In this, in this yeah. stereotypical way. That's yeah. right. And so, um, uh, and, and again, even though there were, there was the implication that they were, you know, engaged romantically, there was no intimacy. And I mean, you don't, you don't see a buildup of like the, of the closeness and, um, you know, uh, the, the kind of characteristics that we were familiar with when there's um, kind of, you know, romantic tension building in the best way, romantic tension building. So, so none of that's on display uh, within within that movie, and you know the other thing that I mentioned in terms of this idea that I in TV and film the way it's portrayed in this this kind of colorblind way, and I'm going way back in the day now, which is I'm going to uh, Ally McBeal. I don't know if you've heard of that show or not. I have heard of that uh, show. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. well, you know, and and her early season, I think season two, you mm-hmm. know, she had a love interest um, who who was uh, Jesse Martin, who African American actor. Uh, but again, there was never a reflection that the main character and her main love interest is African-American. There was no kind of discussion of racial differences or our attention. Uh, um, so there was this idea that um, that race does not matter. And the problem is, you know, that when you have to deal with racism every day, you rec- realize that, oh, it absolutely, absolutely does matter. And also before you and I, so we also talked about the movie Handcuff. And, and this is another one of those, you know, we can't be together uh, because of our racial differences. And and this is another example of, of a black male main character who, again, and this is a, he's a superhero, you know. Uh, how many superheroes do you know, you know, don't have any kind of, you know, love interest or intimacy? And again, broadly intimacy within their lives. Well, even at the end, he's, you know, pretty much a loner in the movie. Um, but... Basically, the message in the movie is that if we if we get together, then we're both gonna die. Like that yeah. is that is literally that is lit. I'm not that's not hyper that's not hyperbole right now. That is literally what the message is. And so you might say, well, it's just a movie, and it is just a movie. My point is that well, what does it say? And I might ask you and ask Jerry, what does it say? Like, what is how might that impact the way that you view interracial relationships? When you have movies that either say it doesn't exist at all, you can't get together because you got 20 problems, or if you get together, you got to die, mm-hmm. right? Oh, how might that impact the way society views interracial relationships? Yeah, absolutely. Hancock is a weird one because I, if I remember correctly, and it's been a long time since I've seen it, um, they're quite literally soulmates at the same time. But if they if they get together, they they're gonna die. Um, yeah, very very strange. I think occurrence, uh, especially when you kind of take that historical 
context into account for sure. That's exactly what it what it that's exactly what it was. I forgot about that point. Thanks for naming that. They are literally soulmates. Yeah. You know, meant to be together, you know, kind of fatalism, you know. Um, and yet if they get together, they're going to die. So I believe she, you know, kind of, you know, said, All right, well, I'll go with the um uh uh I forgot the name of the, the other actor, his character there. Um, so then they can, they can, they can live. But the point is that, so what is that? One of the points is that, so even when you're soulmates, if you, if you dare to engage in one of these relationships though, either it's, it's going to be toxic because there's too much pathology, i.e., you know, set it up, uh, that movie, or you're, you're literally going to cause real havoc and kill, you know, kill each other or, mm -hmm. you know, i.e. Hancock or, you know, there are no, you know, the, Risk of the colorblind society and race doesn't really exist. So then there's no need to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, uh, that was very enlightening. Thank you so much for that TED talk about about interracial media. I'm, I know, I, I know that you know, especially anyone who's listening or watching who is currently in an intense racial relationship. I feel like a lot of these things we talked about, they might already be like. Yeah, none of these movies, <laughs> none of these movies really encapsulate the kind of relationship I'm in. But um, if anyone, if anyone is an interracial, interracial relationship, he's watching and also happens to be a screenwriter, feel free um, to write something better <laughs> so that you can finally have a good example uh, of a movie um, to look forward to. Uh, but um, Dr. Johnson, can you tell us, tell the audience where they can find you? Yeah, so a um, couple places. Uh, so I'm on um, I'm on Instagram at uh, at Dr. Johnson um, I uh, I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. I don't know the I don't know the LinkedIn. You know, I guess if you just put in Bill Johnson at Dr. Bill Johnson, Bill Johnson. Yeah. I don't know the LinkedIn. You know the the, the LinkedIn name. Um, I, I'm on a. Uh, um, a lot of what you're interested in receiving therapy or counseling or Arkansas consultation on DEI, uh, then, you know, there, there are lots of ways to reach me. I'm on uh, goodtherapy.org under my name. I'm on Psychology Today under my name. You can also just send me an email at drjohnson.blhgmail.com. Mm -hmm. um, so let's, yeah, so that's, that's, that's everything. Everything else, that's enough. That's enough fucking social media. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I think we're going to have some of these links in our um, show notes, our description down below, so people can check that out as well. Uh, but thank you so much for being on our show. This, I, I feel like there was so much to talk about that we didn't get to explore in enough detail, but I, I'm still, I, I still feel like I learned so much today, or at least got to have a very in-depth conversation um, at the very least. I hope you feel the same way. It's been great. I really appreciate the invitation. I come back and talk about racial fetishizing. I didn't get there. Or, um, um, or, or, or mindfulness. It's been a great job. Thanks so much for the invitation. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Reliscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. For more episodes like this from 10 different life management perspectives, search LMSL on YouTube, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, so you can get updated on everything we have to offer. We have a wide range of topics readily available for you to check out. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel, as it helps us grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found at re.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Aditi Kuti. Thanks for tuning in.